Well, good morning. Today we're going to finish our series exploring the various doors in the life of faith. And it's been this fascinating journey. And I wanted us, as we come to the end, to take a moment to review. So does anyone remember what our first door was in this journey? Anyone? At the outset, Jesus beckoned us through the narrow door. That's where we began. He says, strive to enter that solitary portal of God's welcome and grace. And all are welcomed to come, but Jesus warns us, as it was with Noah's Ark, that door will one day shut. And on that day, those who are on the inside, those who have turned and received God's hospitality will experience great security and rescue, while those outside will be stuck with the terrible consequence of their choice. Strive to enter through the narrow door was the first message we got. And in the second week, Jesus declared himself to be the door the door of the sheepfold. He says, I am your good shepherd and I will put my body between my flock and all that threatens you. Like the spotless Passover lamb, he is our substitute. He protects us through his self-giving sacrifice. On the third week, we looked at the temple doors that led into the Holy of Holies and we discovered that their very architecture shouted warning, beware, behind these reside the living God with his goodness burning bright and pure. Yet we discovered that Jesus had secured access for us through the doors. He's our great high priest, our mediator, who has reconciled us to God. And now we can know God as Father And all of a sudden, even the most ordinary doors in our life, our closet doors can be gateways to extraordinary communion with God. With confidence, we can draw near to the throne of grace as beloved children to receive mercy and find the grace to help in times of need. In the fourth week, Jesus invited us to cultivate a life with God behind closed doors. He called us to abide with God in secret places, laboring and praying and sacrificing for His pleasure alone. And we discovered that the God who sees in secret will reward us. We also realized that knowing and being known by God Loving and be loved by God is its own reward. And then last week, we looked at the correlation between doors and discernment. We met Jesus with the key of authority on his shoulder, and he was opening doors and closing them. He was inviting us to partner with the Holy Spirit in God's incredible work. And now, we reach our finale And I won't say it's the last door mentioned in Scripture. Uh, We have skipped a few. We've left unopened the prophet Hosea's mysterious door of hope in Hosea 2.15. We've also not turned our attention to the Lord's frustrated call in Malachi 1.10 
that someone, for God's sake, shut the doors, God says, so that his people might no longer offer useless sacrifices upon his altar. In that moment, he says, God is not pleased with his people's gift, for despite all their religiousness, they have refused to follow him in the practical realities of their lives. And there in Malachi, God says, if you won't, don't give me your Sunday best if you're shutting me out of your Monday through Saturday. It's probably your Saturday best because of Sabbath and Jewish and all that stuff. But you get the point. So you have homework if you want it. There's a couple doors we skipped. But today we're going to end with maybe the most famous door passage in all of Scripture. Revelation 3.20 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Lord, as we heed your voice, as we turn our attention to this final door, God, give us ears to hear and an ability to discern your message. Speak, uh, speak to us and lead us into truth and life. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So six weeks into this, you're probably thinking, I've got this. I know what this one's all about. This is Jesus knocking on the door of my heart, asking to be let in. Have you invited Jesus into your heart? He wants to know you. He wants to be with you. He wants to become family to you. He's come all this way. He's taken the initiative. One might even say, hey, it's like that beautiful scene from the Song of Songs where we read this. I slept but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. Don't leave Jesus out in the cold, you say. Heed his call and let him in. You'll never regret it. He is the lover of our souls. And to that I say yes and amen that is beautiful and it is all true, but it has nothing to do with what this passage is about. I'm sorry, we have to stop reading verses divorced from their context. So I have two little bits of cultural background for to teach you as we dig into this text. The first is just a reminder of what we learned last week. Ancient doors were locked from the outside, locked and unlocked with large metal keys, but they could also be secured from the inside with a bar. The head of household, he typically wore his key on his shoulder, if you remember, and it was the symbol of his authority. But if he was going to depart on a long journey, he would bestow his key upon a member of his household, usually his head servant, and it would mark that servant as someone with full authorization to govern the house in the master's absence. Think of Jesus' words to Peter in Matthew 16, 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed 
in heaven. Those are trans-dimensional keys. Jesus is bestowing upon Peter, his follower and his friend, the responsibility to exercise his authority in his absence. The second kind of relevant bit of cultural background is this. It was customary in the ancient world to loudly announce your arrival at the entrance of a house, even if that house was your own home. So it was perfectly biblical to go, Lucy, I'm home. I grew up watching I Love Lucy. I love it. That's the biblical way you enter a house. Now, you might not believe it, but in Jesus' day, rabbis took this incredibly seriously. There's a renowned rabbi, Shimon, who writes this. He says, there are four things which the Holy One, blessed be he, hates, and I too dislike. I can't help it. I hear Rabbi Shimon in the voice of Larry David. One of them is this, one who enters his house suddenly, much more so his neighbor's house. Don't enter any, any home suddenly. Your home, your workers' quarters, you must inform them. When a rabbi goes to another rabbi's house, he at least pauses and clears his throat <clears throat> in the doorway so that those inside can hear his voice. Why does this matter? Why do you have to announce yourself? Why do you have to be loud upon the entry into a home? I don't know. But it is seen as important. Maybe it has something to do with a value for, for privacy. Maybe it's a way of honoring someone, not wanting them to be caught exposed or unawares. It strikes me as a demonstration of both kindness and trust. So let's put this all together and let's hear our verse with fresh ears. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Can you tell what this verse is really about? Jesus has shown up to his house, his church, and he's been locked out, barred from entering his own home. He gave them his keys, but now those of his household, his own people, have left him standing outside in the cold. They've excluded him from the happenings that are taking place within the house. It's the same scenario that Jesus envisions in Luke chapter 12. He writes, well, we read this. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service, the master, and have them, the servants, recline at table, and he will come and serve them. I marvel at Jesus' tenderness and compassion in this moment. And I pray that God will continue to shape and form me into his image because this would not be my natural reaction. You see, we have a split-level home 
we also have a broken doorbell. So there's times at night when I go to take out the trash and one of my um, very security conscious kids, I'll step outside to take the trash out and they'll pass by and they'll lock the front door. And I'm left standing out there in my pajamas in the cold at night. But we have a split level home, so they're usually not by the door. So I'm, hey, let me in. Eliana, Elijah, Amira, let daddy in now. That's my typical reaction. Not Jesus's. Okay, so now that we've shifted our frame of reference, I want us to read Revelation 3.20 in its context. So like last week, Jesus here is dictating a letter to a community of Christians. This time it's in the wealthy Phrygian city of Laodicea in Asia Minor, what is modern-day Turkey. And this is what we read. Revelation 3.14 and to the angel, to the messenger, to the spiritual representation of the church in Laodicea, write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So here Jesus is revealing himself as the Amen, the so be it, the living affirmation of God's truth. He also calls himself in Greek the Arche, the first of creation. It's a divine claim and roughly equivalent with the Latin word for princeps, which was an imperial title that meant first among equals. Jesus is not saying that he was the first being created. Jesus was not created. He is claiming that he was first with God at creation. He was there at the start of it all, functioning as the Father's right hand. He was the voice that began creation. It's again, it's a declaration of his authority, similar to his announcement last week that he is holding the key of David. Jesus goes on, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. In that day, Laodicea was the most prominent city in the fertile Lycus River Valley. It was situated between the cities of Herapolis, about six miles to its north, and Colossae, about 11 miles to its southeast. And Laodicea was the financial powerhouse of the region. And their wealth came from banking, they came from trade, it came from textile production. Their two primary exports were a thick black wool and a highly valued medicinal eye salve. And the city was so famously wealthy when once they were leveled by an earthquake, they were able to turn away all disaster relief funds from the Roman Empire because they had enough in savings to rebuild their city. So they were fantastically wealthy. The one thing that Laodicea lacked was its own natural water supply. Luckily, nearby Herapolis was built on a series of famous 
hot springs. They're piping hot, mineral-rich water, even to this day, is celebrated for its healing qualities. In contrast, Colossae was built on a gushing cold water spring whose brisk waters were renowned for their restorative effects. So both hot and cold water were piped to Laodicea through this elaborate system of aqueducts and and pipes. And you can still see them there today. But guess what happens when hot water comes six miles and cold water comes 11 miles into your city? Both get there lukewarm. And lukewarm water in the ancient world did have its own special purpose. It was used to induce vomiting. So Jesus is saying to the Christians of Laodicea, you don't comfort or heal, neither do you invigorate or refresh. What use are you to me? Either hot or cold, you would have been useful, but you squandered your gifts. You've lost all distinctiveness, and I feel towards you the way I feel towards your water supply. It makes me gag. And we have to ask, what has rendered the Laodicean believers lukewarm and ineffective in Christ's eyes? Well, he tells us, verse 17, For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. We're solid. We're doing well. Our church is thriving. Just look at us. We're impressive, huh? Praise God. We've got a great reputation and we're held up as a model to emulate. Jesus says, no. I see things starkly differently. Laodicea took pride in their financial wealth. Yet God says, buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. They took great pride in their fine black clothing. And he says, no, buy from me white garments so that you might clothe yourself and cover your shameful nakedness. They took pride in their eye medicine, yet the Lord told them to buy from him salve to anoint their eyes so they may see. You see, filled with love and ever hopeful, Jesus rebukes them. He's unwilling to leave them as they are. He says, you're self-focused, self-sufficient, self-important, self-obsessed. You're too busy and distracted. Christians of Laodicea, you have been rendered ineffective by your participation in both an idolatrous culture and a corrupt economic system. Your friendship with the world has left you rich. It's left you comfortable, entertained, but at odds with God. You're self-satisfied, yet you accomplish nothing of value. You do not recognize your great need. 
You don't see that your shame is exposed. You claim to see, but you're blind. You've not separated yourself from the world. You're completely at home in their clothes. And worst of all, you don't realize that you've kept me from drawing near to you. You've locked me out of your life and your life together. You've locked me out of my own church. Verse 19. Those whom I love, Jesus says, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, who overcomes, I will grant to him Grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered, overcame, and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If they repent and let him back in, Jesus promises to eat with them. The Greek word there is depno, which refers to eating the evening meal. That's the main meal of the day, and it's the one that people lingered over because the day's work was done. So he says if we heed his voice and we answer his knock, Jesus doesn't promise us a hurried meal, but a feast at which he will linger long in fellowship with us, where we will be filled up and nourished and known. But if we're not zealous in response to his correction, we do not turn our focus, passion, priorities back to Jesus, we will lose our seat at the banquet and our place of leadership in the new world that he is bringing about. If we leave Christ out in the cold, we find ourselves out in the cold. For true wealth and warmth and celebration is not found simply in his house, but with Jesus himself. If we've locked Jesus out of the church, the church can't save us. So Revelation 3.20 does not belong on the bottom of a Thomas Kincaid painting. It's not designed to warm our hearts, but to arrest our steps. It's Christ's loving exposure of the reality of our situation. It's a rebuke for those who've already walked through God's door of welcome and grace but have now grown complacent and compromised and it beckons us to repent. Again, hear Christ's words in Luke 12. He's riffing on the same theme. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household? to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will set him over all his possessions. But if that master says to himself, my master's delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him. And in an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. 
And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. And then going down a little farther, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. So how do we respond to this revelation of the final door? First, I pray that it causes you to pause and ask some honest questions of yourself. Does my faith and witness have a healthy effect, either hot or cold, on those who live around me? How would Jesus assess my spiritual state? Would his perspective differ sharply from my own? What would he identify as my deep needs? Maybe this one. Can I recognize ways in which my friendship with the world has rendered me ineffective for God's kingdom purposes? How might I be locking Jesus out of my life? How might we be preventing Jesus' entry into and leadership within his church? I think these are questions we have to sit with as we ponder this door. But more than ponder, Christ calls us to be zealous and repent. To repent, you need to know what you're called to turn from as well as what you're called, or in this case, who you're called to turn to. And what this might require is a period of intentional, spirit-led diagnosis. I really think a helpful metaphor is allergy testing. As some of you know, I am gluten-free and lactose intolerant. Uh, but the only the gluten really has the serious debilitating effect on my body, particularly my nervous system. Now imagine something's off with you physically. You go to your doctor, and they run some tests, and they found no obvious disease or deficiency to explain what's kind of messing you up at the moment. It must be something you're exposed to or, or something that you're consuming that is throwing you off, that's rendering you ineffective. So what does the doc prescribe? Typically a month-long total purge to eliminate from your diet a whole potential host of irritants. And let me tell you, this might sound refreshing. You actually feel terrible that month. You're irritable, you're grumpy, as your body detoxes from all your various dependencies and poisons. And once you're clean, with kind of great care and intentionality, you go on a journey of discernment with your physician. You add one thing back at a time and you assess how it affects you. And you'll realize that some things are completely harmless to you and you add them back into your diet with ease. Other things you'll try to add back in and they will just wreck you. And it might even surprise you, this could be something that you've eaten with regularity 
for a long time and experienced no ill effects, but in this season, it just proves totally detrimental. I kind of think this is what being zealous and repenting might look like. The Laodicean believers were made lukewarm and unproductive on account of their unhealthy participation in their pagan culture and their corrupt economic system. Now, what exactly led to their compromised state might be hard to parse out. After all, we're commanded to be not of the world, but in the world, engaged with our community. And we recognize that truth, but we also recognize what James and John teach us. James writes in James 4.4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And John states it slightly differently in 1 John 2, 15-16. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, don't misread this. For God so loved the world and the people of this world that he gave his Son to make us new. James and John are not warning us against loving God's world and the people that he's made. They're warning us against loving worldliness with all its institutions and ambitions and values. And to parse out what might be rendering us spiritually ineffective, it might take us setting ourselves apart and eliminating from our lifestyles a host of potential irritants and then with great care and intentionality embarking on a journey of discernment with our great physician. I don't know what's causing havoc in your life of faith and your walk with God. Is it your political engagement? Is it your passion for fashion? Is it your career ambitions? Your angst about paying taxes? Your aspirations for your children? Your exercise goals? The financial benchmarks you're trying to hit before retirement? Is it the media or the social media you consume? Is it the desire to be thought well of by the other members of your Kiwanis club or the other uh, parents at your kid's school? One could argue that none of these things are necessarily wrong in a vacuum, but we're not having a theoretical conversation. Gluten is not evil, but it ruins me, and it renders me ineffective. There may be things in our lives that appear benign or at least excusable, but for you, they cultivate a friendship with worldliness that turns you lukewarm and deaf to Jesus' voice, his will, his way. They lock him out of your life and our life together. So what would it look like for us to embrace a period of detox? Maybe where we turn to a simple season of prayer, worship, community, and steeping ourselves in Scripture. And then with great care and intentionality, discern in conversation with God and his Spirit what, if anything, is helpful to add back in to our regular rhythms? 
It reminds me of the Apostle Paul's words to his apprentice Timothy. He says, Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also those of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable or common use. So if anyone purifies himself from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. It's not supposed to be heartwarming. It's supposed to be arresting. God stands at the door and he's knocking and he's calling in love, asking to be let in, but because we've locked him out. I don't want to be lukewarm or deaf to his knocking. He's opened to us the door of communion. In his grace, he's made a way to forgive our sins, to make us new. He shared with us his spirit, his power, his authority. He's left for us his keys to continue his life-giving work in his absence. Yet we're tempted as the Lord tarries to grow complacent, to compromise, to shut Jesus out of our hearts, our lives, our churches. And Jesus says, unbar the door and let me in. This should drive us to our knees in prayer. With great zeal, it should prompt us to change directions, to reorient on him, to swing the doors of our life open to our Savior, to our Lord, to to step back into communion, to step back into submission. He's called us into friendship with Him for the sake of the world. Let's not choose friendship with the world at the expense of our relationship with God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, open the door and I will come into him and I will eat with him. I will become family. I will linger. I'll share all that is mine. I will serve. I will love. I will use you. You will do incredible things and we will know one another intimately. I will be your God and you will be my son or my daughter. Don't lock me out. So let's hear that word. Let us, let us set in our hearts. Don't run too fast away from it. Ask the Lord God, and I'm asking in myself, how does this speak to me? In what ways have I locked you out? Let's pray. God, your grace is so amazing. Not only have you opened the door, but even when we've tasted and seen that you are good and we foolishly get distracted and and exclude you from our lives, God, you don't come pounding and screaming. You knock and you call and you beckon us to open to you again. You are kind and gracious. May we never choose something lesser. 
when you are available. May we learn from the example of the Laodiceans, God, and not get so enamored with the world and our place in it that we are ineffective for the new world that you are trying to bring about even now. May your will be done and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May we never lock you out of your church or the hearts of your people. We love you and we thank you for your grace that you never give up on us. Give us the courage and the power to be zealous and repent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.